Our scripture is from Mark 10, 46 through 52 this morning. When they came to Jericho, as Jesus and his disciples together with a large crowd were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. And the blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus. Your faith has healed you. Immediately, he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Today is the last uh, Sunday in this sermon series on questions that Jesus asked. And, and next week we'll go into a new one um, called the Royal Priesthood. And the Royal Priesthood is uh, just a little sneak peek for you. Uh, the Royal Priesthood is uh, this series where we're going to trace all the way through uh, the Old Testament leading up to Jesus, how we see people both live into the role of priest and king, and, and how that doesn't appear uh, in Scripture, that that's supposed to be totally separate. You're not supposed to have uh, the high priest in the temple and the king uh, in the palace, but they're, they're one. And, of course, we see that beautifully in Jesus uh, in the end of the series. Spoiler alert. Uh, the series is going towards Jesus. Uh, but we also see that in people like Adam and Eve and how they interact in the garden and how it's this, this garden temple in one setting. And, and then we see it in Abraham, how, who he offers sacrifices also in Moses and and we'll kind of go through that. So um, overall, how this kind of is working, at least in my own mind, um, I know that there's uh, a good group of you, just to be frank, that uh, have really enjoyed over the years our more in-depth adult Sunday school time searchers. Uh, I see some nods. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about because it hasn't been around since before COVID. But uh, there is a thing. Uh, and I know that some of you have really just found that to be a place that has connected with you well. So I'm, I'm kind of doing this series both as a sermon series and a little, little deeper Bible study kind of thing at the same time. So uh, I think that will probably speak to where many of you are, and hopefully I won't go over the heads of other people if, if faith is really uh, new to you or something like that. But uh, I'll try to do it well. So anyway, there's your sneak peek. Uh, but right now, we are in questions Jesus asked. And, and as people came before Jesus, whether it was his disciples or other people he was interacting with, uh, he taught in many ways. He taught by giving sermons. We see that quite a bit. He taught by telling parables, these short stories with really deep meanings, uh, many of which have stood the test of time and, and we're very familiar with. But he also taught people uh, by asking really good questions. And questions have this ability to kind of get past the surface level, to, to dig down deep. Sometimes they force us to answer things uh, that we kind of would rather ignore or we kind of would like to breeze over. Uh, but these questions have this ability to dig in deep. So here we are 
in this sermon today, and we have another question of Jesus, and it is this. What do you want me to do for you? Now, before I get into that, um, have you ever worked a job without a job description? <laughs> Anyone? Not my job right now. I'm not talking about being a pastor. Anyone? I, I did. When I was a high schooler, I worked at a roller rink, uh, which is a great high school church, or not church job, great high school job, a solid minimum wage uh, high school job. So, so there's the skating, if you're not familiar with the roller rink. <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's, there's the big area where you, you skate or you rollerblade, and then there's food, and, and this one kind of had an arcade at it, so, so people would get the tickets, and they'd bring it up to the prize counter and exchange that for things. So uh, as I was working, I'd be at one of those three spaces. So I would either be at the skate counter, which means you uh, hear people's shoe sizes, and, and you give them the right skates, and, and they rent them that way, and then they come back, and you uh, hopefully clean them and then put them back uh, on these big racks. Uh, but you're high schoolers, so who knows. Um, I also worked at the food counter, which sounds less appealing now that I just said that. Um, but the food counter, you know, it's just really basic stuff. I mean, you're just super overpriced, but it's literally a frozen pizza that you're buying. Uh, you know, the big pretzels, you know, this kind of stuff. Uh, or at this prize counter where you take the tickets and you exchange them. But none of these areas had a job description at all. There was, there was no direction. All, all it was was you got hired at the roller rink and you showed up for your first shift and they paired you up with someone that hopefully somewhat knew what they were doing. Uh, and then you just kind of learned on the job for the different roles. And what would often happen is we'd have these staff meetings and the supervisor would come and they'd be really upset that no one has been doing one of the things. No one's been cleaning this uh, appliance or no, no one's been sweeping, you know, under the stuff and... and uh, and they would be really upset, but it was this weird feeling because like, there was no job description. <laughs> there, there was no checklist even. There was nothing that, was, that I was supposed to be doing. And then in college, I, I, I changed jobs, uh, went off to college, and in college I worked at a group home uh, with four men that were physically and mentally disabled. Uh, and they all lived in the same house, and, and I was a personal care person. I, and I worked this job for many years through college and into seminary. And um, it really is, in, in my mind, it was ministry the entire time. You know, I'm, I'm doing this. Uh, this is not a kind of job you can pay someone to do. Um, this has to be a, a ministry in your heart. It has to be the kind of thing that, that you're doing on purpose. But, but because it was in the medical field in general, very clear job descriptions checklist. You literally had this long checklist. It was multiple pages, and you went through each thing at the end of your shift, and you initialed if you did it or not. And you got to do all the stuff. It's important stuff. Uh, it's, it's, some of it was simple, like, did you sweep the floor and do the dishes? And other things were like, did you administer the medications properly? Uh, and, and you would sign off on it. And it was very clear, but what stood out to me was, was that we were having these staff meetings. And in the first job, the, the high school job, the, the staff meetings always went, um, you know, you're not doing something right, and then, and then you'd be confused, and it was this same question that Jesus asked here, what do you, what do you want me to do? <laughs> what do you want me to do for you? I, I, I don't know. And then in the second job, it was the opposite. We would meet, and it felt like my boss, who just had a different attitude, would say, what can I do for you all? Like, what, what can the boss do for the staff? 
How can I make your job better? How can I make it smoother? How can I make it work better? And, and uh, I don't know, if you're a boss, maybe that's your takeaway today. Uh, but, but what stood out to me is it's the same question that Jesus asked here. What can I do for you? And I don't think it's like the first one where he's not like living up to some standard that we have. And, and we're like, Jesus, what you could do for me is it's kind of do your end of the deal. Like, I thought if I worshipped you and I did this, I'd be blessed in this way. I, I don't see that in Scripture. What it seems like is that second one. How can I come alongside you right now? How, how is life going? How is, how is your relationships going? How can Jesus be there for you? What do you want me to do for you? So here we are in Mark chapter 10. Uh, and it was just read for you, 40, verses 46 through 52, but we're actually not going to start there. We're going to back up a little bit. It's, this is actually the second time Jesus asked this exact question in two stories. <laughs> They're back to back, and, and we, we probably should read it that way. So the first one starts in verse 35. This is 35 through 40. Starting in 35, then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. You already should have some red flags popping up. That, that sounds a little odd, right? Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Verse 36, here's our question. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked. They replied, let one of us sit on your right and the other on your left when you come into your glory. Well, let's pause there. So what are they asking for? Here we find James and John. These are two of Jesus' disciples. They're two of his closest uh, disciples, actually, alongside Peter. They're, they're kind of Jesus' inner, inner core companions but they're still under this mistaken belief that Jesus is going to be some kind of earthly king. So what they're expecting is this, as they read the Old Testament, as they look at the Messiah, and they believe he is the Messiah, but they believe the Messiah has come, or will come, to throw off the rule that is over them, which is the Roman Empire at this time. So the Roman Empire is over the people of Israel, and they believe the Messiah will come, and he'll be a new king in the line of David, and he's going to throw off these, these Gentiles, these Romans, and it's going to start this new kingdom, and it's going to be mighty, and it's going to be powerful, and Jesus, in their minds, is going to be the king. And, and they know he's heading towards Jerusalem right now. The cross is, is looming in the future here. We know that. But James and John aren't so sure. They think he might be going to Jerusalem to start a rebellion to gather the forces that are then going to the rise up and defeat their enemies finally. Finally, they believe the people are going to be free. So what do James and John want? Well, they're saying, Jesus, when you become king, can we be like your top, your top guys? When you're sitting on your kingly throne, uh, how, about, how about I sit on your right and my brother here, he sits on your left. And, and we're like your top generals. We've been with you this whole time. We're close companions. What, what if we're elevated 
into these amazing seats, and, and we will rule right alongside you. Now, how this stands out even more is if you back up just a few verses, uh, what my Bible says here is the heading is, Jesus predicts his death a third time. This comes right after Jesus is telling them what's going to happen. And they're still blind to it. So, so Jesus says that he's going to be handed over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law, that they will condemn him to death. This is all right before this. That they will condemn him to death, that they will hand him over to these Gentiles, these Romans, that, that they're expecting Jesus will come and overthrow, that Jesus is actually going to be handed over to them. He tells them that they will mock him, that they will spit on him, that they will flog him, and that they will kill him. And then Jesus tells them that after three days, he will rise. That ends verse 34. If you don't have your Bibles open, it's, right, it's verse 34, and then 35, then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. This is not random. Sometimes the headings kind of throw us off. I think when we read through the Bible, we, we, those came later. In case you don't know that, those came later, uh, and they can be helpful, but, but this is one story that's going through here. So, so Jesus tells them what's going to happen, and he tells them the brutal, honest truth. And, and then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit on your right and the other on your left, in your glory. How does Jesus respond? You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? We can, they answered. James and John are nothing if not bold. Again, they're not getting what he's saying, but, but they say, we can. We can do that. We can drink the cup. We can be baptized with the same baptism as you. And then Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and will be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right and on my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. Can you drink of the same cup? Can you be baptized in the same baptism? Uh, metaphorical language, and, and they say yes, but they're so blind to what he's talking about. They don't even realize that, that Jesus is going to win this war in a totally new way. That he's not there to destroy, but he's there to be a sacrifice. In the cup, of his, in the cup and, and the baptism, those are his death and his resurrection. That's what he's saying to them. Are you going to die the same death that I'm going to die? Are you going to be raised from the dead in the same way? And where it goes even deeper is that, that there is someone who's on his right and is on his left when we come to the cross. 
and there are two criminals. And one of the criminals is, uh, one of the criminals turns, turns his life and repents, and, and Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise, and the other one mocks him and does not. That, that's who's on his right and his left. It's not James and John. Of course, Jesus did go on to say, you will drink of the same cup, and you will be baptized of the same baptism, and that does happen. Uh, If we fast forward a little bit, James dies by the sword in Acts chapter 12, verse 2. James dies of the sword. In Revelation 1-9, John is the one who is writing, and he records his own suffering in his time of exile. But we also believe that they are raised from the dead in new life, right, alongside Jesus. So they do get, uh, in, a, in kind of a way, what they ask for. <laughs> they just don't even know what they're asking for. They're just blind to what's going on. And it's of absolutely no coincidence that we immediately then go into this story that was read for you earlier. There's no coincidence at all that, that in Mark's gospel, we read the very same question with very different results. So that brings us here to verse 46. Then Jesus came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, or then they came to Jericho as Jesus and his disciples together with large crowd were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that Jesus of Nazareth was coming, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. So we go straight from James and John, who are blind in other ways, to to meeting a blind man. And, And in their time period, that would automatically make him very, very low Uh, on the social status. All he would spend his day doing is begging for people. And and there's this this large group that is gathering in Jerusalem, and they're going to come by Jericho, so he makes sure to be by the roadside that day. And he makes sure because because they can just toss coins maybe in his direction, and, and he'll be able to eat tonight. And he spends all day begging. Because of his status, because of where he is, the people, they treat him like he's nothing. They treat him like he's nobody, like, like he's, he's unimportant, he's, he's just off to the side, and, and maybe if they take enough pity, they kind of throw some coins in his direction. But we get a hint here that that's not how the story is going to go. The gospel writer Mark he doesn't treat this beggar as nobody. Did you notice that? He actually tells us his name. That's a big deal. His name is in the Bible forever. He's not a nobody. He's lifted up even in that moment. And we are told uh, that his name is Bartimaeus. And Bartimaeus hears that Jesus is going to pass by and he starts to shout and he starts to cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. 
Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Verse 48. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up. On your feet, he is calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and he came to Jesus. Earlier in the gospel, when Jesus was in Bethsaida, the people brought him a blind man. The the people of the town in their compassion found the the blind man that was among them and, and brought him forward to Jesus so that he would be healed. But here, the people of Jericho, they rebuke him. They tell him to be quiet. They tell him that he's, that he's bothering others by crying out to Jesus. But he cries out all the more desperately. And we find Jesus, and he's finally reached the last stage of this long, long journey. And in front of him is, is the shadow of the cross. And he knows it's coming, and, and, he's, and he's approaching Jerusalem for the last time. But he still can hear the cries of those who are in distress. And he stops. And he calls the man forward. And the people instantly change their tune. As soon as Jesus recognizes him and calls him forward, the people change their tune. They turn to they turn to him and they say, cheer up, get on your feet, he is calling you. And we're told that he throws his cloak and that he, he, he runs forward, he jumps up to his feet and he comes to Jesus in verse 51. Jesus asks our question for the day. What do you want me to do for you? And he says, when you come into your glory, can I sit on your right hand? (laughs) No, (laughs) yeah, right. (laughs) Verse 51, what do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Here's our question. It's the second time in chapter 10, what do you want me to do for you? But a totally different answer. Rabbi, I want to see. Go, your faith has healed you. And he immediately receives his sight and he begins following Jesus. Do you see, do you see what's happening here? Do you see what's happening between these two texts? We have the disciples, James and John, and they're blind. They're blind to Jesus' will. They're blind to Jesus' plan. They're blind to what's going ahead of them, even though he just told them the very few verses before. And then we have the blind man, Bartimaeus. And his faith has caused him to see. And Bartimaeus, he actually demonstrates his faith very tangibly. 
here. I don't know, did you catch that when we were reading through it? Very tangibly. He does something that should kind of show us as the readers how much faith he has. And it's out of context for our own culture, so you might not have seen it. Very clearly, he, he gets up after Jesus calls, and the first thing he does is he throws his cloak to the side. Why, why does he throw away his cloak? His cloak is everything he's had. It's, it's, it's the opposite of the rich young ruler, right? The rich young ruler had so much that he couldn't give it away. Here, the blind man throws all he has. He throws his cloak away. How this would have worked back then, remember, he's sitting by the side of the road, and by day, he would have laid out his cloak in front of him. And as people came by, they, would, they wouldn't necessarily stop and you know, put money into a can or something. They would just kind of toss it in his direction. By the end of the day, it was all on the cloak, and he could kind of gather it up. But, but that was used for him to beg. This is, this is his, his uh, towel that's in front of him. It's his cloak that he actually lays out. And at night, it is the only thing that keeps him warm. It is all he has. And the second Jesus calls him forward, he takes it off and he throws it away. I don't need that anymore. He's not healed yet. But he knows that Jesus is going to heal him. He knows that that in a few moments he won't be blind any longer. He will not need this cloak. He has thrown it to the side and he comes before Jesus. He's about to approach Jesus, and Jesus will heal him. He has faith. He calls out to Jesus, Son of David. That's the title he uses. This is this Messiah title. It's actually the first time in Mark that it is used. Other people have said that Jesus will be the Messiah, but Jesus, Son of David, this is what Mark saves it for. This man knows who he is. He comes before him. They're told that he will give sight to the blind. That's a passage in the Old Testament. The Messiah will come and he will give sight to the blind. So this blind man knows that it's him and he has so much hope and he has so much passion that, that he comes forward. And he throws away this symbol of his old life and, and it all works out. Jesus does heal him and we're told that he goes along the path, and he follows after Jesus, and he lives a new life. I mentioned at the beginning of the service that this Wednesday is called Ash Wednesday uh, in the church. It's the beginning of the season of Lent. It's this, this period of 40 days uh, that, that go towards Holy Week, that go towards Easter, and early, early on in the church history, early on in, in the history of the church, uh, people would, would go to Easter, and they would go to Good Friday and everything around that with so much reverence that they actually decided early on that we're not maybe coming in the right way, that, that we're coming to it too quickly. And it seems kind of interesting to me, because I think a lot of churches kind of come to Easter quickly now, <laughs> right? I mean, how many churches? I mean, we probably all have, have been to some, or, or at least been aware of some, that it's just like normal Sunday morning, and then all of a sudden, one day's Easter. You know, churches do the same thing with Christmas. It's normal stuff, and then all of a sudden, there's like, oh, and now it's Christmas, and then we move on. Uh, 
But early on, the, the, the early church, our, our own ancestors, decided that it's probably not right. We're, we're not approaching this with the right heart. We're not approaching this with the right attitude. And they started the season of Lent. That starts on Ash Wednesday, and it journeys 40 days. And it ends uh, with Good Friday. So I don't know how familiar you are with this. I mean, I realize people that come to chapel, one of the beautiful things about this church is that uh, there's not a lot of churches up here. I don't know if you're all aware of that. <laughs> there's not a ton. There's some, and we pray for them, and it's wonderful. Um, but it means that, that we are a diverse group as we gather. We're a group that's grown up in different traditions. Some, some have been believers, some have not been believers, but even the ones that have been Christians, many, many different denominations are represented from our own upbringings. Uh, and Lent is something that some of them celebrate more than others. Um, but it's a beautiful thing. So here, here's just a little background of what's actually going on here. Because uh, I think it might encourage you going forward in the weeks ahead. In the church throughout history, many Christians have decided to focus, leading up to Easter, to focus a time around giving up something. And that's kind of what a lot of people know about Lent. You know, oh, you don't eat this or you don't do that. Uh, giving up specific things. So whether it's a food or a habit or, or a way of life, something that they uh, are creating space. So that's the whole idea. Is, is we're all busy. Our lives are busy. If you ask people, how are you doing? It feels like that's the socially correct answer. Oh, I'm really busy. Right? And, and it's true. We are, we are busy people. So um, the, there's this intentionality of creating space that we can create uh, a space in our daily lives, whether that's food or habits or ways of life. But again, it's about the intentionality, that people enter into Lent and they say, this is what I'm going to set aside for the season of Lent, but I'm not just setting it aside, I'm setting it aside to make space for something else. Again, we're so busy. Even retired people. Blows my mind. <laughs> I'm glad you're laughing. <laughs> but it's true, right? We say, how, how are you doing? Oh, we're busy. We're busy. It's been good, but, but we're busy. You know, I have people come to me every once in a while, and, and they'll say, you know, I just don't feel like I'm growing in my faith right now. You know, they have this desire to be growing in their relationship with Jesus, to be, to be kind of growing in their faith, and say, I just, I just don't feel like I've grown in my faith in the last, I don't know, name your amount of time. Two weeks, ten years, you know, whatever you want to say. And, and I, I don't do it to be snarky at all, but I normally go through this list, and I say, well, are you reading your Bible? And they say, No. Are you spending time with God daily? No. Are you serving other people? Are you, are you, maybe, maybe you're living out your faith. Are you, are you serving other people? And they say no. Are you taking time in your daily lives to pause and see what God is doing? See that God is alive and active in the world and that, and that we're not just going through the motions? And they say no. And it sounds kind of silly, but I would be kind of concerned if they were growing in their faith. 
<laughs> if the answer is no, if the answer is like, no, I haven't gone to the Bible, I haven't prayed, I haven't served other people, I haven't lived out my faith in any tangible way, but, but yet I have this feeling that I should be growing in my faith, and that's a great feeling, but what would you be growing towards? How would you be growing in your faith? If, if you're not doing this, and it's not that people are evil, it's that people are busy. I think the season of Lent is a really big opportunity this year. That we can enter to this time and we can say, let's put aside some of this stuff that has just been filling up our calendars, filling up our schedules, filling up our mental space. And not just put it aside to make life simpler, but to add in something that is truly meaningful, that is truly worthwhile, that is truly um, worth seeking after. And if you say to yourself, I have no idea where to start, <laughs> I think that's a fair, honest thing to say. You're like, I don't, I don't even know what that looks like. Uh, shedding something out of your life, I feel like we can kind of think of those things. We can think of what, what's the busy things. What am I wasting my time on? You know, are you still watching Netflix? You know, kind of uh, question that pops up on the screen. Some of you don't know what I'm talking about. That's wonderful. <laughs> it's, it's a thing. I think it's like five episodes in or something. Are you still here? Or are you playing this for your cat during the day? <laughs> and you're like, yes, I'm still here. Quit shaming me, TV. We can think of the things that, that are causing this excess busyness. But, but if you can't think of what to add, that is uh, where I talked in the beginning of the service of this reading of the book of Acts together. It's daily. I actually have it set it up that if you look at the schedule, it's, it's Monday through Friday, uh, starting Ash Wednesday, going all the way through Lent. And uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful way to do it. It's just a chapter a day, but it's intentional. And I think that's the biggest thing. Of course, getting into God's Word and reading it is incredibly important. But there's an intentionality that will have to happen daily in order for you to do that. And if you get a few days behind, don't beat yourself up over it. You know, some of you, uh, I just know that, that you just, you have a hard time diving into to God's Word. It, it, it sounds strange when we read it. It's not like a modern novel. It doesn't flow the same. It's a different genre. It's a different kind of thing. One of the nice things with the book of Acts, just to give you a little book of Acts pitch, uh, is that it's at least narrative. <laughs> it's telling a story. We like stories. Learn a new story. And, and if it's hard to sit down and read it. There's so many great opportunities. Now, I have, I have the Bible app on my phone. Uh, I'm sure many of you do. It was one of the first apps ever created uh, for the Apple App Store when it first launched. Um, random piece of trivia for you. This can be your takeaway. You ready for your random trivia? So we are an evangelical covenant church. That's our denomination that we're a part of. Uh, it was a covenant church that made the Bible app. Woo! We're famous. No. <laughs> but pretty cool. I mean, the people have downloaded all over the world, all over the place. It's pretty cool. I think they were in Texas. Uh, but if you go on there and you go to Acts chapter 1, and you're like, this is my reading for the day, there's a little speaker on the top, and if you hit that, it'll just read it to you. Put on your headphones or blare it out. Go for your walk around your neighborhood. 
listen to your chapter. You know, if, if sitting in a chair, if that feels awkward, if that feels like I don't do this normally, I'm a busy person, I'm always kind of doing stuff, listen to it. Listen to someone else's words as they read it. But, but don't just go through this next month and have Easter sneak up on you. What a shame that is. We have a real opportunity to lean into God, to lean in and to have it be at the end of this, this next 40 days to be able to say, I grew in my faith. And, and, and you will hopefully not have a, a friend as rude as me, and they'll say, did you read your Bible? And you'll say, yes. <laughs> and they'll say, uh, did you spend time with God daily? And you'll say, yes, I, I read my Bible and I thought about it and, and, and it like made me think about God and, and not just this ancient book, but it, it made me reflect on my own relationship with God. So yes, I did that. And, and did you serve others? Well, hopefully you do. Maybe you can read it to someone else. It'd be a nice service, especially if you've got little ones at home. And were you taking time to pause and reflect on what God was doing in the world? And say, of course I was, because I was, because I was reading the Bible. I was in it. I, I read it, and, and I couldn't help but have it apply somewhat to my own life and, and think about what was going on. And then, and then we'll all say, well, I'm not surprised you grew. I'm not surprised you feel closer to God. That sounds like all the things we need to do to connect with God. To not live a life that is that is blind to, to what God is doing, but to have eyes that are open, to have eyes that can see where God is alive and active around us. Mm-hmm.